couple of weeks ago, we talked about the power of sequels and the risk of prequels uh, when it comes to predicting cinematic uh, success. Uh, we use that to kind of tell the story of Moses in Numbers chapter 20 and how that was kind of the prequel to what we preached before when Moses was whole, uh, handing off the leadership baton to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. And so today, I want to examine another Hollywood tactic uh, for success, and it's what's known as the plot twist. Now, I don't watch movies as much as I used to, but I will say this, I am a huge fan of an unexpected plot twist. Do I have any friends in the room, anybody love a good plot twist in a movie? I love that. I especially love it uh, when that plot twist comes at the very end of the movie, when you can literally watch the whole movie and say, I did not see that coming in a Incredible plot twist happens uh, at the end. So when we talked about sequels and prequels, I told you there were movie critics out there who had put together all these lists. These are the best sequels ever. These are the best prequels ever. When it comes to plot twists, there were similar lists out there as well. And so if I asked you, hey, what's the greatest plot twist ever with all the sheer volume of movies ever produced, with that list being subjective, there's no way that you could guess what uh, most people or many people said is probably the greatest plot twist movie ever created. And so, I'm going to give you a hint to what number one was, the greatest plot twist on the list that I looked up, all right? And so, here is the clue. I see dead people. How many of you know what movie that is, right? Like, oh, yeah, right? So, that is the movie if you've never seen it. Now, if you've never seen it, you're like, uh, this guy's weird, right? Like he whispered, he sees dead, like what is that? So this is the movie, uh, The Sixth Sense. And the plot twist is at the end, the main character uh, is dead and doesn't even realize it the whole time at the end. So one guy said that's the greatest plot twist ever in cinematic history. Well, if you study the scriptures, uh, you're going to find there is an incredible record of plot twists where God uses unlikely people, God does unlikely things, and stories that are playing out in God's providence can have an incredible plot twist that you did not see coming. And so today, as we continue our series, Here's the Faith, we're going to see this incredible plot twist uh, by a biblical character by the name of Esther. So if you want to turn with me to the book of Esther, your Bibles or your devices, Esther is located uh, two books before Psalms. So far we've looked at the life of Joshua, Moses, and Gideon, and all three provide examples to follow and some examples to avoid, but more importantly, we saw how all three of them pointed us to Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, the greater Moses, and the greater uh, Gideon, and so, but we got three more messages in the series. We're actually going to extend it a, a week, and we're going to shift gears. And so, the last uh, two characters we're going to look at over a period of three weeks are going to be the lives of some godly women. And so, we've looked at a couple godly men, and then we've looked at a few years ago. We did a series; it was all men. I said, "Hey, there's some godly women in Scripture to learn from." And so, uh, we're going to look at Esther for two weeks today, and then we're going to look at Ruth next week to wrap or the week after to wrap up that series. Now, if you've been a student, you've heard all these messages, you've thought, hey, we're going to do a two-parter on Esther's life. We, we went through life of, you know, these other guys and their story, and we didn't do a two-parter for any of those. So what's the deal with that? Well, let me just tell you something. The nicest pastor on staff, and it's not even close, is Pastor Eber, right? So if you've met Pastor Eber, you've learned that. He's far and away the nicest pastor on staff. And sweet Pastor Eber said this, well, just tell people that it takes two weeks to explain some women. That's what he said. <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole, all right? 
And if you see Pastor Everday, Espanol meets down in our chapel, if you see him today and ask him about that, uh, I can already tell you what he's going to say. No habla inglés, right? Like that's... So if you've uh, never read the book of Esther, uh, you've never been exposed to her life through the theological depths of Veggie Tales, uh, then you can go home and read all 10 chapters in less than an hour. And in doing so, you're going to make a fascinating discovery. And that discovery is this. In the book of Esther, there's not one single mention of God in the entire book. Not one mention, all 10 chapters of the entire book, but yet, when you study the book, you see God is all over the pages of the book of Esther. Uh, his sovereignty, his providence is on display as he provides a way of escape and deliverance for the people of Israel. And so let me kind of set the context for the book of Esther as a whole, since we're going to look at our life in two parts. Uh, so God's chosen people, the uh, Israelites, were scattered throughout the region uh, in the Near East. Now, Babylon had been the ruling power for quite some time, but now uh, the Persians had taken over uh, the authority. And in this changing of the guard, some Jews returned home to Judea, but there was a remnant who stayed there in Persia. So they were a minority group in that uh, region. They were viewed with suspicion uh, sometimes. Uh, they were even faced with threats on occasion. And the two main characters in the book of Esther uh, are Esther, whose name is also uh, Hadassah, and then her cousin, uh, Mordecai. And so Esther and Mordecai are Jews living in a Persian uh, world. They have zero influence uh, they're living amongst uh, some scattered out remnant of fellow Jews across 120 provinces of Persia. And that is until God decides to sovereignly intervene and use these two people with little influence, Esther and Mordecai, to be exalted into some high positions in the ruling party of Persia and be active agents in saving the Jews from destruction uh, once again. Nobody saw that call, uh, coming, no incredible plot twist. Nobody could have predicted how God was going to use these people despite all those contexts. And so what do we see from the big picture through all of that? We're going to see the next couple weeks that God is sovereignly providing for his people even when we are unaware. God is sovereignly providing for his people even uh, when we're unaware. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is incredibly comforting and encouraging to know that when I'm walking through a difficult or dark season in my life, that God is at work providing sovereignly for his people even when I'm unaware of his activity. I can trust that is the character and pattern of God in Scripture. And so we're going to see that truth play out in four scenes. We're going to look at two of those this morning and uh, two next week. So in order to set the stage for the first truth that I want us to see in part one today. We're going to read verses one through five, and then we're going to skip down and read verses eight through 12 here in chapter one, all right? So let's look at verses one through five, then we'll skip down eight through 12. Now in the days of Asterusus, I think that's how you pronounce it, by the way, the Asterusus who, king, uh, who was king who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 uh, provinces. In those days when the king, which by the way also in scripture, sometimes the same people have different names. So if you ever see Xerxes in scripture, same guy. All right. So uh, he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and media show, uh, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Like how many days? 180 days. Like this is the rager of all ragers, right? 
like six months, it's on, parting for six months. And so what we're going to see is the final culmination week of that here. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. So this is the final week of that six-month party, all right? In the court of the garden, the king's palace. So skip down into verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in that palace that belonged to King Ahusuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, drunk off his rocker, all right? That's what that means. He commanded a bunch of people whose names are really hard to pronounce, right? And seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Right? So here's the first thing I want you to see uh, in this passage in two parts of looking at Esther's life. And the first thing I want you to see is this, is that God uses ungodly people for his glory. God uses ungodly people for his glory, to display his glory through their life, whether they're willing participants or not. God uses ungodly people to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And let me tell you why that's so important. In our political culture over the last several years, that is an incredibly important truth to settle your hearts in. To freak out over uh, who's in political power, listen, really what it is, it's a form of unbelief. It's saying that somehow it's an open denial of God's sovereignty, that God's no longer in control, that the whole world's out of control. Listen, that the song we sing, that he has the whole world in his hands, is now threatened because so-and-so in some part of the world is now uh, in power. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. God is still on his throne, ruling and reigning in the chaos of the world. Everything is playing out according to his sovereign plan, and it will end exactly how he said it's going to end. There's nothing wrong with appropriate concern. You're going to see some concern played out here. Very concerned. Wanting godly people in positions of leadership is appropriate. We need more Christ-honoring people to bring salt and light to the toxic political landscape. We need more peacekeepers instead of power brokers in all levels of government. But when those things do not happen, to go into a full-blown panic where fear becomes a ruling desire. It's no longer appropriate concern, but fear and anxiety becomes a ruling desire. Listen, let's call that what it is. It is a form of unbelief. And I've seen that more on display in the last several years than in the 15 years of my ministry combined. Watching that play out. Now, if you struggle with that, if you just say, hey, I hear you, and I know that intellectually, but when I see these things playing out all over the world politically here in our country, I just, I get this anxiety and this fear, and what's going to happen, and, and you know, how's God going to work in the midst of all these things that are playing out in the political landscape? Listen, if that's you, let me give you one verse. I could have picked lots of them. Let me give you one verse to write down, memorize, and meditate. And every time you see the news or some political thing and you start freaking out, just meditate on the truth of this verse, right? Here's the verse, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, so whoever's in, in charge, right? The king's heart 
is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he, God, he turns it wherever he wishes. Wherever he wishes. He said, God says, hey, listen, whoever the king is, whoever's in charge, whoever's going on, listen, his heart is in my hand. And at any moment through my sovereign decrees, I can turn that like the rivers, the waters of a river, I can turn that wherever I wish. I'm still in charge no matter who gets voted in. That's what God's saying. He said, I can turn it like rivers of water. Over and over in the Bible, we see that the sovereign purposes of God cannot be overthrown by wicked rulers. Over and over we see it playing out on the pages of Scripture that God works through and in spite of the lives of ungodly people to accomplish his kingdom purposes despite their political agendas. One of the most wicked and powerful kings in the Old Testament uh, is a guy, but maybe you've heard the name, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And let me listen to the description of his power from Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, listen to this, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. This guy's not in charge of the local zoning board, right? This guy's not the president of the HOA, who nobody likes, by the way, if that's you. Amen? This is the guy who they say, hey, literally, of all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, he's the king. Listen, this guy is literally the most powerful man on the planet at that time. Now, there's some debate later on that whether he not was genuinely converted, scholars disagree on that, and we don't have time to get into his whole life story, but there's no debate that prior to that potential conversion experience that he was wicked and he was absolutely powerful. Nebuchadnezzar is notorious for decimating the Jewish presence in the land of Israel, exiling the vast majority of its citizens to Babylon, and then destroying the first holy temple, the place where they commune with God's presence. He destroys it. Scripture tells us he was a narcissist with a violent temper. And so if there's ever a leader who literally is the most powerful person who's wicked, who's narcissistic, who has no interest in the the plans of God, the kingdom agenda of God, who could thwart the purposes of God, it would be Nebuchadnezzar. But listen how God handled the baddest man on the planet for refusing or for throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace when they refused to bow down. This is the baddest guy on the planet. This is the guy that if anyone could thwart the purposes of God, it would be Nebuchadnezzar. And listen to what's recorded, how God handled him in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 33. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now, if you ever wonder, he's a narcissist, listen to this. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Humble guy. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
immediately. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. What does that remind us of? That the most powerful and wicked leaders who will ever get into positions of power and rule the planet are no match, cannot stop the kingdom agenda of our sovereign, omnipotent God who's still in control no matter who's in power. We see that playing out over and over in Scripture here in chapter 1. Vashti the queen, listen, she's not a godly, virtuous woman. She's not who Proverbs 31 is pointing to. Like, hey, here's an example. Look at Vashti. According to historical Jewish teaching, Vashti had a habit of torturing Jewish girls and women on the Sabbath. Those same historical documents also say that she liked to parade around in her birthday suit to display her beauty as the ultimate display of her vanity. Tradition says, and this isn't scripture, so you just take it for its word, it's Jewish tradition. Tradition argues that the reason that Vashti did not come out when the king summoned her would she love to go out there and parade around and, uh, you know, and display her beauty? But tradition says the reason she refused is because of her torture of Jewish women on the Sabbath. She was struck with leprosy. And so because of her physical condition, she refused to come out because she was so vain. She did not want anyone to see her uh, in that condition. That, that's the person who's in control that God uses for his purposes to promote Esther. And listen, the king, not a saint. He's in the middle of kicking off a six-month party that culminates in this final week here of just debauchery. Listen to what one commentator said. King Xerxes loved to flaunt the wealth of his kingdom and revel in the splendor and glory of his own majesty. To exhibit his greatness to the public, the king decided to hold a royal banquet for all his nobles, officials, princes, and military leaders. This was no ordinary dinner party. The celebration lasted for six months, and the grand finale of showing how great he was was to put his trophy wife on display, not because she was good, but because it made him look good. These were not godly people. These were not people sensitive to the kingdom purposes of God and what God's trying to do in redemptive uh, history. Vashti's refusal was because of pride, not the purposes of God. But God used that debauchery. God used her pride-filled refusal. God used all those things through these ungodly, wicked rulers. And God oriented all those circumstances. Hey, listen, you're going to turn this down because of pride? Perfect. I'm going to use your refusal to have you removed off the scene, literally, if you read the story, right? And through that, through your pride and wickedness and vanity, I'm going to use that as an occasion to exalt a girl by the name of Esther, and she is going to deliver her people. And I'm going to work through her despite your ungodliness. And so what does that remind us of? God is not limited in displaying his glory or accomplishing his kingdom purposes when ungodly people are in power. God is still sovereign. God's still on his throne, ruling and reigning. We see that over and over, and that still is true today, praise God. We learned several weeks ago that God is glorified when his attributes are magnified. And when God accomplishes his kingdom purposes, despite the resistance and obstinance of an ungodly leader, listen, it puts God's sovereignty and his omnipotence, which is a big word for meaning he's all-powerful, it puts it on display. God is glorified 
accomplishing his kingdom purposes when ungodly people are in power. So do not allow appropriate concern to grow into the ruling desire of fear when an ungodly person gets put into power. The redemption story is going to end exactly how God says it's going to end. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. And so let's move on in Esther's life to chapters 3 and 4. I'm going to get stirred up in a minute, praise God. I don't care if you say amen, I'll say amen myself, right? And as we advance the storyline, we go on to chapter 3 and 4. And what we see in chapter 3 and 4 in the book of Esther is this, is that God uses our obedience to change culture. If we were around and surveyed the room right now and said, hey, listen, we get God's sovereign, doesn't matter who's, you know, I've said this before, no matter who's in the White House, God's still coming back on a white horse, right? Like that's all going to end exactly how God wants to end. But if we're honest, we'd look around, we'd see the godlessness in culture, we'd see culture moving further and further away from a biblical worldview, we'd see what once was, you know, considered wickedness is now what's celebrated, all those things. Uh, we, we would be concerned. I'm concerned when I look out. And so here's what we need to realize is that God uses our obedience in the midst of those wicked cultures to move the needle for his kingdom purposes. Over the past few years, we've talked about this often in our uh, political climate, cultural climate around us. Followers of Jesus uh, often go to one extreme or the other and neither one are the appropriate. For some, when they see the wickedness being played out in culture, the strategy is uh, isolation. I'm just gonna remove myself from the culture, but the problem is this. When you're not engaged in a culture and you've removed yourself from culture, you, know, you forfeit the opportunity to be salt and light. And so isolation is not the answer. For some though, the other extreme has uh, played out in their life and it's culture war Christianity. Well now the people who don't know Jesus are no longer the mission field to be loved, now they're enemies to be destroyed. And even if they were our enemies, they're not, but even if they were, the Bible still calls us to what? To love our enemies. That's the distinctive mark, one of them, of biblical Christianity. In culture war Christianity, we end up having this irrational anger, like they don't hold to a Christian worldview, they don't have Christian values, even though they don't even know Jesus Christ, but we're mad because they don't have Christian values. So we see all these extremes. We mistakenly think that power is our greatest need opposed to revival, and so we're guilty of all these extremes, Right? Some people just say, hey, isolate, just pull, you know, just pull away from the culture and just kind of hunker in the bunker until Jesus comes back. And some people say, no, 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 listen, let's get out there. We're angry. Let's hold signs, picket signs, right? You know, the problem with picket signs, I've told you this before. Picket sign is what? It's, what's the message of a picket sign? It's always someone else is the problem. You ever seen anybody holding a picket sign that says, I'm the problem? Never. Right? So what's the answer to all this? The answer is this, and I want you to listen. It's to be the most loving and least compromising person anyone's ever met. If we're honest in this cultural moment, we look at love as a weakness. When I read the pages of Scripture and see the life of Jesus, I believe that love is still the thing that changes the world. And in this moment, what we've 
in this culture, what we've said with our actions mostly is that somehow love is the unfortunate choice for those who are weak, too weak, or too cowardly to fight. When the gospel says love, there is no greater love than this, and a man lays down his life for his friends, and it changes the world. We get it right when we do not compromise our values, but we do so in such a way that the people who disagree with our values are also deeply convinced that they're valued by us. Let me repeat that. It was a good place for an amen and you missed it, all right? We should hold fast to our values in such a way that the people who disagree with our values also know they're deeply valued by us. Can the church say amen? That's what it looks like to live faithfully in a culture set against wickedness and be a follower of Jesus Christ, and over time, if you do that over time, then gradually God will use your simple, ordinary, everyday acts of obedience to move the needle in your circle of influence. The book of Esther, Mordecai models that for us. Look with me at chapter three, verses one through five. Chapter three, verses one through five, it says, after these things, the king promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. Big promotion. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day, listen, this is ongoing. Ongoing. So I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Ongoing. When they spoke to him day after day. He would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Mordecai says, I- I'm not doing it. My allegiance is the one true God. The only person I'll bow down to is the one true God. And so to bow the knee to uh, here, that would have been the, uh, violating the command to not worship false gods, to not give anyone honor over the one true God. And, and Mordecai stood his ground. Knowing there's a high cost of obedience, Mordecai was following God. He's going against the grain of society. right? He's unflinching in his convictions. We don't see any hate or anything in his voice here that we read in Scripture. And and as you can imagine, uh, this really upset Haman. And so Haman said, hey, that's fine. That's how you want to play. Then guess what? I'm going to put a plan in action because I've got a lot of power. I've been promoted. I'm going to put a plan into action where according to chapter 3, verse 13, I'm going to wipe out all the Jews in the whole region. You don't want to bow down to me? That's totally fine. Here's how the game's going to play out. Uh, everybody who's a Jew like you, I'm going to wipe them out in the whole region is how this thing is going to play out. And in chapter 4, as you can imagine, if we keep reading the story in uh, chapter 4, this decree caused the Jews to mourn greatly. Mordecai's in the street, sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, lamenting, weeping is what we read there. And so, old Morty, which is what I call him, sends word to Esther, who now is in a position of power. And of course, she's greatly distressed. Mordecai commanded her. He said, you need to go to the king and 
beg his favor and plead with him on the behalf of our people. Now, I want you to listen. If you're listening, say amen. One little detail in the story. Esther had not disclosed to the king that she, in fact, was also a Jew. Big deal. So Mordecai says, hey, you got to go and plead on behalf of our people. The king doesn't know that those people are Esther's people. And so in doing so, she's exposing herself. She's got a dilemma on her hands. And on top of that, it was a law that if a king did not summon you into his inner courts to speak to him and you went anyway, the decree was you could be killed for that. And if you went anyways, unless the king, he could reach out his golden scepter to you, and if he reached out his golden scepter to you, then that was him saying, okay, I'm going to listen to you speak, which, by the way, it's how we manage our staff here, praise God, right? (laughs) Come to my office, sometimes I throw a pen at him, that means come in, right? This is serious stuff. And so for her obedience to Mordecai's command to go into the king without an invitation to gain an audience with him, and he didn't extend his scepter, guess what on the other end of obedience was? It was death. And so Mordecai begins to reason for her, reason with her and say, but Esther, Esther, and then he drops that famous line. If you know anything about the book of Esther, here's the one line you're probably familiar with. He said, Esther, Esther, Esther. He said, you have gone to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has raised you up and put you sovereignly, providentially into the position that you're in through all these circumstances for such a time as this, Esther. Now, who's going to say no to that line, Right? And so she agrees, and she says, hey, let's fast and pray for for three days. And then she says this ice-cold statement that we read in verse 16 in chapter 4. She says, I'll go to the king. I've not been summoned, but I'll go. And here's what she says. I mean, ice in her veins, right? If I perish, I perish. Like, I thought that line was original with Ivan Drago in Rocky. Remember that? If he dies, he dies, right? No, he stole that from Esther. What courage, what faithfulness to God, what obedience to Mordecai. Listen, that that she would risk her own life to save her people. And I told you when we began this series, the danger is to say, hey, dare to be a Daniel, you know, hold up these peoples, the, the model of who we should model. And we could stop right now and say, listen, God is calling us in this cultural moment to, for such a time as this, to raise up and be Esthers and those kind of things, even unto death. Well, let me ask you a question. Can you think of anyone else in redemptive history who was willing to be obedient unto death to save his people? Can you think of anyone else whose death was plotted and engineered by evil, ungodly people? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? So once again, what do we see this Old Testament hero? Who who is Esther pointing us to? Pointing us to Jesus. Pointing us to Jesus, the type and shadow of Christ could not uh, be more obvious. And so yes, Esther's an example to follow because ultimately what she's following, she's pointing us to what Jesus has modeled for us. That we follow Jesus in obedience and boldness and yes, even unto death, no matter what it costs you, she's pointing us to Jesus. Now, let me explain some tension in redemptive history. 
God is going to sovereignly accomplish his kingdom purpose no matter who's in power, no matter how ungodly they are. Listen, if he can lay waste to Nebuchadnezzar, no one else is even a match. So God is going to sovereignly accomplish his purposes. But here's the tension in God's redemptive narrative that God in his sovereignty has chosen to work through the obedience of ordinary people like you and I to accomplish his purposes. There's tension there. There's tension there. And in that obedience, guess what? It has a ripple effect. We've taught often that sin never happens in a vacuum. I can't tell you how many times I've met with people and they've been in the midst of sinful patterns and they've come in and talked to me, their life's falling apart and, and here's what they'll tell me. Well, listen, I don't know how this affects anyone else. As if sin happened in a vacuum. That's not true. But can I also share with you that your ordinary, everyday obedience does not happen in a vacuum as well. There is a ripple effect from the obedience of your life. And over and over throughout the pages of Scripture, we see God sovereignly accomplishing his purposes on one end. But on the other end, we see God over and over using the obedience of people to work through to accomplish his kingdom purposes. We see it over and over and over again, redemptive history. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, obey me. And so that's the motive of obedience. It's the overflow of our love. But the impact of our obedience, I believe this, the impact of our obedience will not fully be known until we're on the other side of glory looking back. And so God uses Mordecai, he says, I'm not doing it. I'm not bowing the knee. I will not worship anyone other than the one true God. God uses that to set in motion these wicked plans. And then through that, Mordecai goes and pleads to Esther. And he says, hey, listen, for such a time as this, God has raised you up in this moment to deliver your people. And her obedience, she says, I'll do it. And through her obedience, God rescues his people. God uses ordinary obedience to change the world around you. There is a ripple effect to the obedience of your life and of Esther's life and of Mordecai's life and of my life as well. The great D.L. Moody was converted in the back of a shoe store. Like, what's that? It was Amazon before Amazon was cool. People went to the store and bought stuff, right? And the gospel was shared to him by a Sunday school teacher who went to visit him at a shoe store at work in the back room. He shares the gospel. D.L. Moody receives Christ. And the guy just says, that's just what obedience requires, that we would tell people about Jesus. And God uses that obedience to, in the conversion of D.L. Moody. The great Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers, was converted while walking to church in a blizzard in 1850. Now, I don't want to be legalistic. I want you to think about that. The next time you wake up and it's raining, you're thinking, I don't want to go to church, right? When he could not walk any further, he just went to the closest church he could find to get out of the weather. Because the weather, the circuit-riding preacher did not show up. And so an untrained layman got up had never preached in his life, but he wanted to be obedient to the people gathered. They need to hear a word from God. He's like, I just want to obey and want to do this. And so he gets up and he reads this text, Isaiah 45, 22, and it says this, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's the only thing he read, and then he just talked about that verse for about seven or eight minutes. Whatever come to mind, he talked about it. And listen to what Spurgeon said. He did not even pronounce the words right. 
which in today's text is greatly encouraging to me, all right? He says they didn't pronounce the words right, but that did not matter. Listen to this. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text, and he gave his life to Christ. God used that man's obedience, not his giftedness, to preach the sermon that led to the conversion of the great Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. Your obedience makes a difference in the kingdom agenda of God. From Esther to 2023, God in his sovereignty has chosen to work through the everyday, ordinary obedience of people like you and I to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And so let me wrap up part one today by asking a very important question. Is there an area of your life where God is calling you to obedience and you're resisting him? It may be something he's inviting you to do to join him in his work and you've got all kinds of reasons why you can't. All kinds of excuses why in a different season, a different set of circumstances, with a different set of gifts, and a different set, then, then I would do those things. Listen, God's not interested in what you would do if things were perfect. God's interested in what you'll do when things aren't. Obedience is always inconvenient. Do you realize that? Like when someone makes me angry, like obedience says, hey, just love them to return. Listen, that's inconvenient because what I want to do is, right, like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> you can fill in the blank, Right? Is there an area of your life where God is calling you to obedience, to do something for him? You've got nothing but excuses. Or is there an area of your life where God is calling you to obedience to stop doing something? And you've got all the reasons why that's just not possible in this moment. Let me encourage you today with a simple gospel reminder. No matter how hard obedience is, and it's always costly, if the risen Jesus is inside of you, then you've got the grace necessary to empower you, and therefore obedience is always possible in front of you. If the risen Jesus is inside of you, then obedience is always possible no matter what's in front of you. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you two questions. Number one, is the risen Jesus inside of you? Has there been a time and a place or a season in your life where you became convicted over your sins, you knew your sins separated you from God? And you agreed with God. That's what confession means. You agreed with God that you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from God who's holy. But you also believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for those same sins, that he was buried and he rose the third day, and you placed your life in his mercy-filled hands and asked him to forgive you of your sins. Has there been a time and a place or a season where you've truly been born again? Does your life give evidence of that? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then the good news of grace is this. You can be sure today. Jesus said, I came so that you may know you have eternal life. And today, right in your seat, right in your seat now, you can pray and confess your sins. 
You can have a desire to turn from them, repent of them. And today you can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can walk in this room lost and unsaved today, and you can walk out saved and forgiven of your sins if you would pray right now by faith and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that right now in your seat? Would you pray right now and give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? For those of you who have done that, here's a second question. I've already asked it once, and here it is. Is there an area of your life where God is calling you to obedience and all you've offered in return are excuses? Maybe it's to start doing something, to start serving, to get baptized, to do whatever. Maybe it's to stop doing something, you know, that's grieving the heart of God. Would you right now before the Lord, no one else knows, before the Lord, would you right now, whatever that is, would you just surrender that to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to have your way in my life right now. I'm surrendering this area of my life. No matter how hard obedience is, no matter how costly it is, in this area, whatever it is, I'm going to obey you, Lord. I'm going to quit resisting. I'm going to quit making excuses. I'm going to surrender this area of my life. I'm going to place it in your faithful hands. Do whatever you want with the outcome of my life. Would you pray that scary, faith-filled prayer today? Father, we're grateful that because of grace, when we disobey, Lord, your grace is still available. That God, in we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we proclaim the great hope of the gospel that with Christ in us, Obedience is always possible in front of us, not because we're strong, not because we're great, but because Jesus is. We rejoice in him today. For it's in his name we pray, amen.